This week, we will be wrapping up our series on living the gospel. Now, we didn't hit the gospel of John verse by verse, and there are plenty of fantastic texts and stories that we skipped over. And if you'd uh, like to go back and read those, I would encourage you to do that. But today we wrap up with the final passage of the book. At this point in the story, Jesus has visited the disciples after his resurrection. Thomas has had the experience of of touching the marks left on Jesus' hands and side. Jesus has even sent them, as Pastor Augie talked about last week, when he said, as my Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The thing is, they don't really go anywhere. I mean, I love, I love the disciples. They are such an encouragement to me. The Son of God himself tells them that he is sending them, and they go, yeah, we don't really know what that means. So we're just going to chill. We're just going to go back to doing what we know how to do. And that's what they do. They go back to fishing. And, and that's encouraging to me because there are times that I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. Looking back and realizing how God was moving and, and working in my life and, and the calling that he put on my heart, I feel pretty silly for not having known what to do next. But hey, God had mercy and grace on the disciples and their indecision. And so I'm thankful that he has mercy and grace on us in our confusion and indecision. That's just a little pre-sermon for you. That's not the heart of what we're talking about today. But knowing where the disciples were helps us get a better picture of what is going on in our text this morning. The disciples have gone back to their life as fishermen. They're doing their thing. Now, now fishing back then was quite a bit different than like commercial fishing now. We have boats with, with motors and depth sounders and all this stuff. They had sails and tricks of the trade and oars. And one big difference is that now we have special webbing so that it's harder to see that webbing, it's harder to see the nets under the water. So we can fish during the day. But back then, they just had ropes. So most of the work was done at night, harder for the fish to see rope nets in the dark, right? Well, they had spent, the disciples had spent all night fishing, and they had caught nothing. And as dawn is breaking, and they are beginning their preparations to be done for the night, on the shore of the lake, they see a figure in white. And this figure calls out to them, friends, did you catch any fish? Not a one, they answer. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, comes the reply. That's my right. Your right, I guess, would be over here. On the right side of the boat, comes the reply. The seasoned fishermen look at each other. I, I can imagine a shrug or two takes place. They, they know what they're doing. Like, this is their job. They're professionals. Throwing the net over the other side of the boat really shouldn't make any difference. Plus, dawn has broken. It's light out. The fish will see the nets. This probably isn't going to work, but curiosity takes over. What will happen if they do it? They'll give it a shot. And they throw the net over the side, and it loads up. They caught so many fish, they didn't have the strength to bring the haul into the boat. Then John looks to Peter and says, It's the Lord. And at this realization, Peter wraps his outer cloak around himself and jumps into the water to swim to Jesus. The other disciples follow in the boat, towing along the net of fish. When they reach the shore, they see a fire is going, and there are some coals with fish cooking and bread warming. 
Jesus has Peter drag the net ashore, and there are like 153 fish in it. We're talking over 1,000 pounds of fish. That's, that's a lot. And then a conversation takes place. Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, responds Peter. To which Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds, take care of my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter is hurt. This is the third time. Is, is Jesus doubting his love? Peter replies, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus replies, feed my sheep. But he doesn't stop there. He's, his continued response is where our text picks up this morning. Again, we're in John chapter 21, verses 18 to 25. And if you'd like to follow along, there's a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. If you'd rather not use that, it will also be up on the screens. So you can read along with us. We read the word of the Lord this morning. John 21, verses 18 to 25. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Nothing like a nice little pick-me-up conversation in the morning, right? After, after a long night's fruitless work, Peter realizes his friend, teacher, his leader, his Lord has come, and he rushes to meet him. He jumps into the water to swim to where Jesus is on the shore. It's not exactly the talk with Jesus that Peter had been expecting, and definitely not the one that he had been hoping for. History tells us that Peter died through crucifixion, upside down. At the time, Peter wasn't thrilled to get this information. We see that later on in these verses. He, he most likely didn't know exactly what kind of death he was going to experience, but he was told right here that it wasn't going to be something he desired. It, it wasn't going to be fun. It wasn't going to be pretty. It would be something that brought glory to God, which is good, but I would imagine that didn't bring a ton of comfort to Peter in the moment. 
It was probably pretty hard for him to realize that, to, to grasp that at that particular point in time, which is totally understandable, right? Really, Jesus? Peter's thinking. This is the third time I've seen you since you died and rose again, and this is what you have to tell me. What looked to be the start of a promising morning is turning out to be a rough one for old Peter. And then Jesus continues by asking Peter, do you love me? At first, Peter's confused by the question. He feels that the answer is pretty obvious. But as Jesus asks the question the third time, the realization sinks in. Jesus knows about Peter's denial. I mean, that night at dinner, Jesus had said that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny knowing or being involved with Jesus three times. And Peter had done exactly that. But no one had been around. There hadn't been anyone around that, that knew him, that had been near enough to witness his shame. But of course, Jesus knew. Of course he did. And now here he is in his own subtle way, letting Peter know that he knows. Three I love yous to cover the three times he said, I do not know this man. As Peter is reeling from Jesus' words, his teacher, his friend, his Lord, asks him to go for a walk. Come follow me, says Jesus. And we pick up with that text in 20 to 21. We read, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, I could be wrong, but it seems like there's a bit of a strange relationship between Peter and John in the Bible. And that tension is emphasized here in our text this morning. John consistently refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I would hazard a guess doesn't exactly sit well with the old firebrand Peter. There's a story of James and John petitioning Jesus to sit at the, the right and left hands of Jesus in heaven, signifying their importance. And that definitely did not sit well with the other disciples. Added to that, in the Easter story, John feels the need to point out that he ran faster than Peter to the tomb, but that it was Peter who was the first to enter the unclean place. In Peter's account in Luke, John isn't even mentioned at all. Now, I'm not saying that these two hated each other. But I think that there is enough left said and unsaid to imply a bit of a rivalry, some tangible tension between the two. And I think that gives us some insight into Peter's reaction to the words of Jesus in our text this morning. For when Peter and Jesus go on to their walk to talk, Jesus follows, John follows them. Now, Peter had received some disturbing news, right? And he looks over his shoulder and sees this man that he mostly loves, but he doesn't necessarily like right now, walking behind them. And he asks Jesus the question, Lord, what about him? What about him? How easy it is to relate to Peter. For in our distress, in, in times of trouble and conviction, we don't always apply the law appropriately, do we? The law is a gift to us. The law that God has passed down, the expectations that God have of his people, these are gifts to us. But it is also a struggle, isn't it? 
The law convicts and condemns. We, we come to church and are taught that through Christ we are free from judgment under the law. And I stand up here and proclaim to you that if you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the law has no authority over your salvation. For Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law through his death and resurrection. And yet even though we have freedom from it, there is still a part of us, there's a part of me, which loves and clings to the conviction and condemnation of the law. There's a part of us that craves the law, for in our sinfulness, we apply the law improperly. It becomes our own uh, personal old nature utility tool. Sometimes it's a, it's a measuring stick so that we can see how close or far someone came to succeeding. Sometimes it's a beating stick that we use to remind someone of how imperfect he or she really is. And sometimes it's a pointer used to deflect attention from us to, to someone else. And that's what Peter is doing here. Being tired of feeling like the punching bag, having his denial of Jesus thrown in his face, being told he's going to experience a painful death. He, he looks to lash out to bring somebody else down. John, John is right there. Tell me, Jesus, what horrible things are in store for that guy? I don't want to dwell on, on my misfortune, but I would be happy to hear about his. When it comes to the law, we love to apply it to the lives of others, don't we? While it may appear that our focus is on someone else, when we allow our old nature to think this way, to act this way, our focus is truly on ourselves. We're trying to deflect away from the sin that we see, that we recognize, that we know in our own lives, and focus on the sin we desire to see in someone else's. Again, we're trying to deflect away from the sin we see in our own lives and focus on the sin that we desire to see in someone else's. But someone might say, the Bible tells us to confront our brothers and sisters in their sins, which, which is true. We see one example of this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where we read, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This isn't saying rebuke them haughtily or make sure they know how short or how far they have fallen. It says to restore with gentleness. Each of the verses dealing with confrontation of sin instruct that grace and gentleness be the foundation of our communication. It is out of care for the brother or sister and their relationship with the father that we are to say anything at all. Are we very good at that? How are we doing with that? Is our desire to confront someone in their sin more about what they are doing wrong than their relationship with God and how their sin is affecting that? When Peter is talking about John, he's not asking out of desire to know the good that will happen to John, but in hopes that John will be suffering just as he will be. But God is not fooled by our sin. He knows exactly what is going on in our hearts. Jesus understands exactly what is going on with Peter. In John 21, verses 22, Jesus answered, 
If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Jesus says, Peter, what business is it of yours what happens with John? You don't have any jurisdiction here. That's not your responsibility, and it's above your pay grade to know. Jesus cuts straight to the quick. He understands the heart of man. He tells Peter that how he is working in someone else's life is not Peter's concern. It's not our concern how the Lord chooses to bless someone else or how he chooses or what he chooses to let us experience. And it certainly isn't our responsibility to judge the fairness of our circumstances in relation to the circumstances of our brothers or sisters. As a father, you know, I, I try to be fair with my children. Sometimes it's not possible. That's largely because I'm a broken and, and sinful person. But the lack of perfect fairness does not mean that I love any one of my sons less than any of the other five. There was a time when we were up in Canada, and Judah was very particular with how he liked to play with his toys. And he would get out his Playmobil, and we had like a Playmobil zoo that he loved playing with, and he had them all in their right little cages with the right labels on each of the cages. And, and he would like to play with his, with his animals in this particular way. And Asher was pretty good at respecting Judah's OCD. Caleb was not. So Caleb would come in like Godzilla in any situation, just, you know, I mean, he was like one and a half, two at the time. He's just figuring out how to walk. He wants it, and he's just kind of like stumbling in and is like Judah's fear. Like, this is what I'm, this is what I hate. This is what I can't take. Yeah, that's right. Like, we know, we know. We, we all have those, those, those ones that like, we, we know what's going on. We got brothers and sisters. We know what life is like here. So Judah's got everything organized, and Caleb would just come in and just crush everything. So one day, we let Judah have the playroom, and he got his Playmobil, and Asher was allowed to go in with him, but then we set up the fence, like the, the, the baby gate on the doorway so that Caleb couldn't get in. And Caleb was ticked. He's just grabbing that gate, and he's trying to shake it, but he's not strong enough. And he's screaming and yelling like, I want in. I want to be a part of this. I want to be part of the family. How come they get to do something that I don't get to do? Why do they get the special treatment? How come you're playing favorites? Like he's not actually, I don't even know those words at that point in time. But that's what he's feeling, right? Like he's like, how come I don't get what they're getting? How come I don't get to play with those toys? Why do you love them more than me? You can see that I'm mad. You can see that I'm not happy. I'm out here crying. I'm freaking out. My life is ending. My, my one and a half year old life as I know it is over. I just want to play with the lions, Dad. Like, can I play with the lions? No. You're out here for now. Does that mean that Karen and I love Caleb any less than we love Judah or Asher? Of course not. Caleb was, was mad and frustrated at his situation. He didn't understand why he wasn't allowed to play with his brothers. He, he couldn't grasp it. His mind couldn't process that information. And, and there was no way that we had to accurately communicate it to him in a way that he would accept or understand. He just had to accept the situation that he was in. 
I'm not trying to say that there's a logical reason that fits into our box of acceptability when it comes to God and how we expect to be treated in relation to others. I'm simply stating that just because things may not seem fair in our eyes does not mean that God values you or cares for you less than he does anybody else. As it was for Caleb, so it is for us. We don't have power over some of the situations that arise in our lives. It can be easy to look at others and say, God, why aren't you blessing me in the way that you're blessing them? But if our focus is on others and what they are getting or experiencing and comparing that against what we are getting or experiencing, we risk missing the big picture, the ultimate truth, the root of our hope. When we treat God's blessings like Halloween or Christmas or Easter and and try to figure out if someone got more candy than we did or better presents than we did, we are in danger of ignoring or devaluing the reality, the hope, the promise of the ultimate gift, the gift that truly matters, the gift that we are given when Jesus Christ came to earth. When he lived a life among broken people in a broken world, but was himself not touched by the brokenness. And he remained perfect. And then he willingly took our brokenness, our sinfulness, upon himself on the cross. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, Jesus took every sin we have ever done and ever will do, and he paid the price for for it that we could not. Our sin demanded retribution. Our sin brought a divide between us and God. But on the cross, Jesus took the retribution. On the cross, the curtain was torn, and we were reconciled to God through faith in Christ. But Jesus did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the gift that truly matters. This is the gift that God desires to give to all, no matter the circumstances of life. The gift that is given through faith, this is the gift that is eternal. What we are given here on earth will fade and pass away. Let us remember and cling to the promises, to the hope that will last forever. And as we rest in that hope, let us look at how Jesus follows up his statement to Peter. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And here we get to a pretty important part. Jesus is telling Peter that it is not the, that Peter is not the important one in this situation. Jesus is informing us that he is the center. He is the main character in the story. So often we want the story to be about us. And we live in a world that encourages and enforces this idea, but in actuality, the story is really, truly about Jesus. What happens to us is ultimately inconsequential. The only reason we are important is because we are important to God. And we are so important to Him. He loves you so much, so much, that He sent His Son to die for you. We just spent a while talking about the law and its improper use. What is the proper use of the law? For all the bad that comes from improper use of the law, if applied properly, it does have glorious purpose. The law tells us how to live. It tells us how the God that loves and created us desires us to live. 
It's good things. The law is beneficial for us. It's good, meaningful instruction. It's a blessing. But we aren't able to live up to it perfectly. We, we keep falling short of its demands. And so the law ends up pointing out our shortcomings and spells out clearly, you are not good enough. The law is a blade that cuts through the lies we tell ourselves and others. It cuts through the lies that adorn the facades of perfection we desperately attempt to display. It cuts through the shell we hide in and the barriers we have constructed so that those who witness our lives will think we're doing all right or even great and not see the pain, the hurt, and the sin we so desperately want to conceal from ourselves, from others, and from God. The law serves the glorious purpose of pointing us to the cross. 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light is living the gospel. It's recognizing that we need Jesus, recognizing that we cannot save ourselves. It's resting in Christ's work on the cross. Walking in the light is recognizing that our works, great as they may seem to be in the eyes of man, are nothing but dirty rags before the throne of the living God. Through this recognition, we have the prom promise that the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all of our sins. And what a promise. We are to recognize that Jesus Christ is the center, and when we have Christ, we have everything. Focusing on Christ and the fellowship we have with him because of what he did for us causes the selfish desires for fairness to leave. It causes the improper use of the law to fade away because we realize that this isn't about anyone else. This is about us. It's about Jesus and what he has done for us. Earthly comparisons fade away when we are living the gospel. Church, I hope that we encouraged this morning. Encouraged by what Christ has done for you and what he will do through you. We are not perfect. Peter was not perfect. We outlined that fairly clearly today. And yet we also see in Scripture how Peter, despite his shortcomings, was still used in fantastic, awesome ways by God. Matthew 16, verse 15 to 20, we read, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We see God working through Peter. For it was not on Peter's merit that he would be the rock on which Christ built his church, but because of what the Father in heaven had revealed to him. And God desires to use you as well, not of your own merit, but through Christ and through what he has revealed to you. Let us not be distracted by the circumstances of our life or the circumstances of the lives of others. Let us instead focus on God and what he has given us in Jesus. And when, we, and when we do get distracted, when we do let other things get in our way, when we use the law improperly and focus on the shortcomings of others or the shortcomings that we desire to see in others, let us remember Peter in this text this morning. Let us repent. Let us live the gospel and let us remember that even though we have failed, God has forgiven us. And let us find comfort in the truth 
That despite how our sinfulness gets in our way, God can and will, like he did with Peter, use us to do mighty things for the sake of the kingdom and his mission. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen. As we respond to the word this morning, I'm going to call Matt and Michelle forward to uh, lead us in in a hymn. I encourage you to stand as we sing that hymn together. singing, you may be seated. As we transition into our, uh, our communion service, uh, John, could you go let the, the ladies in the, the different rooms know that, that we're moving into this and so they can, they can bring the kids in at any point? That'd be great. Thank you, man. I love the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to tangibly experience and feel the grace and provision that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing that we receive, the gifts that we receive from the supper. It's just wonderful. The forgiveness, the hope, the joy 
Sometimes it feels like we can't have it enough. As we, as we prepare our hearts for what the Lord is about to provide for us, let us read or hear the invitation that we have from our Lord in the scriptures. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As we, as we rest in that promise, let us just take a minute to confess together this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your condemnation. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and well. I got lost reading. That's terrible. But it is what it is. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Here at Calvary, uh, you do not need to be a member of our church to join us in the Lord's Supper. We do believe that, that Scripture makes it clear that this is a meal for the believers. So this isn't something that we earn. This isn't something that, that, we, that we take because we've had good behavior this week. It's really, it's, it's a meal for the unworthy. When we recognize that we don't deserve it, when we recognize that this isn't something that we have earned, our hearts are ready. So we just encourage you to, to join us in, in the, the dinner this, this morning if you are putting your faith in, in Jesus Christ and if you recognize that, that he, that your need for the dinner, for the forgiveness and for the grace and for the mercy that we have in communion. I'm gonna call name forward. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that we do do here is name and I will come and, and, and distribute the elements. We ask that you hold on to the elements and then we will all partake uh, together at the same time.
is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And now hear this. Our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ has now given you his holy body and blood through which he has made full satisfaction for all of your sins. May he strengthen and preserve you in true faith and unto everlasting life. Amen. By the body, by the body and blood of Christ, you are forgiven, church. By the body and blood of Christ. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This time, I'm going to call the children forward for a blessing, so if you did not receive communion, come on down, let me pray for you. This time, it is uh, customary for our church. If there's something that you'd like to praise the Lord for, uh, something that we can celebrate uh, how God has been working in your life, this is an opportunity to, to share that. Let's close our service in prayer this morning. God, we thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that we receive. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for how you gave us your body and blood and what that means for us. God, we, we pray that you would be with the conflicts in the world today. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the conflict uh, over in Ukraine. I pray that you would fight against injustice, that you would uphold what is right, that you would strengthen and bring perseverance. God, I, I just pray that you give our, our leaders wisdom as we, there's so many things that are going on in the world, so many things that can divide us, so many things that are coming up, and I just pray that you'd give our leaders wisdom, whether they're leading our country or our, our communities, our states, our boards, our churches. I pray that you'd give them wisdom, and I pray that we would lean into the wisdom that you give, God. God, we pray against sickness. Uh, we just, there's, there's, so many, there's so many things that tear apart our bodies. And, and Lord, I pray that you would just continue to, to fight against COVID and the, the flus and the sicknesses that are going around, all of those that are fighting cancer and, and just all of the other issues. We pray particularly for, uh, for Pastor Mark Tungseth as he has gotten some good news with, with his cancer stuff. And we just continue to pray that he would continue to get good news. Uh, we just pray that you'd be with him and his family as he continues that fight. And God, we thank you for 
for the mission that you have given us here at Calvary. We thank you for the church that you are continuing to grow and nurture here. And uh, we just pray that this would be a, a place, a welcoming place for, for people, for the hurting, for, the, for those that are feeling well. We just thank you for the community and for the church that you are growing here, Father. We pray that you would just continue to do that. May you continue to open doors for ministry for us into the community, continue to build relationships for us amongst ourselves. We just continue to, to bring all this before you. We thank and praise you for all that you're doing, and we pray in the way that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand as we receive the benediction today. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God's peace be with you.